Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For today's episode, we're interrupting the Real Change Anthology series to bring you a special memorial episode of Bell Hooks. This episode features Sharon in conversation with Belle and was originally recorded and released in May of 2017. We're re-releasing it today to honor Belle's legacy and teaching after her recent passing in December of 2021. We'll continue on January 3rd with the final episode of the Real Change Anthology, focusing on our final topic, of moving from burnout to balance. This final episode features interview clips with Joel Leone, Joshin Burns, Killian No, Sebene Selassie, 
and Shelley Tegelski, to name a few. Enjoy today's episode. Okay, so let's sit comfortably, as comfortably as you can. You can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. We'll start, actually, why don't we start with my favorite reflection of all, which is, let's see who comes to mind. Uh, If you consider for a moment who all has been in any way involved in your being here in this room right now or watching this online, however you may be experiencing this. Because nobody really was walking down Amsterdam Avenue and saw a bunch of people coming in here and thought, I'll come in too, right? We're all here because somebody told us about their meditation practice or they gave us a book or they read us a poem. We're here because of conversations we've had, people who've reached out to help us, people we've reached out to help. We're here because of relationships, encounters, connection. So who all comes to mind? This moment is actually like a confluence of all that interaction, all those connections, as is every moment. We might feel so alone and so apart, but the truth is our lives are embedded in this greater fabric. So who comes to mind? It's like, who did you bring with you? Sometimes I do this reflection and I think about the Board of Regents of the state of New York, which gave me a scholarship, which is how I was able to go to college. And I went to India on a college program, which is how I learned meditation. Because they're part of why I'm sitting here right now. And sometimes I do this reflection and I think about those people whose actions have really, really hurt me. Not just the ones I felt like annoyed at, you know, but those times where I I thought I'm really at an edge and I've got to find something different or I won't be free because they're part of why I'm here right now too. That's the true context of our lives every moment. And within that context... We place our attention on our breath, that movement of air, which is linking us. And let it be the vehicle for our really uniting with ourselves in this moment. So thank you. 
So we can open our discussion, and I would invite Belle to say something. Well, actually, the person that came to my mind as we were in our meditation was Sharon, precisely because from the first time I met her, the generosity of spirit that she extended to me. And in fact, when we hadn't seen each other for quite some years, and we ran into each other in a hotel here, she was telling me, I'm writing about love. And I was like, well, you know, Sharon, that's my subject. That's, that's what I'm obsessed with. And I am fond of saying, anytime we do the work of love, we are doing the work of ending domination. And that is actually a thread of incredible sweetness that runs through Sharon's book, Real Love. She gave it to me to read, and I, I couldn't put it down. I stayed up because it's such a comprehensive love workbook, which I think everybody should read. And I said that, I, I, it's fantastic, Sharon. Um, and oftentimes there are people who write books that I think, I wish I had written that. And this is one, because it's just so powerful in its exploration of what we need to do to practice love, to practice metta, to be in a state of loving kindness. And, and it's fascinating to me that we are on one hand, as she will talk about in her, her book, so obsessed with romance. But in fact, I find people very turned off to the practice of love. That when you tell them that there's really a practice, um, there's really a way that we, many of us, especially those of us from dysfunctional backgrounds, that we really have to learn what it is to love. And Sharon evokes in her book our innate, what she calls our innate capacity to love. But I'm not sure that many people really believe in that, Sharon. Well, why would we really? I mean, uh, <laughs> um, well, like Belle, I too have been obsessed with love, which is why uh, it was the most amazing thing for me to get to meet you when I did, which was probably like 15 or 16 years ago when I first uh, moved to New York City as an adult. I moved here because I was working on a book called Faith. And uh, I don't even know how we got to meet, but I was so excited because, of course, you know, um, here was like a, a model of somebody talking about love in, in the most um, unsentimental, unsaccharine, uh, powerful way. And, and it was really exciting. And then Belle moved to Kentucky, and I haven't been to Kentucky lately. And uh, <laughs> it's been all these years. And then I did lose an apartment and. Um, there was a, a gap of a month when I was kind of wandering around, staying in all these different places before my next sublet, which on the one hand could seem like a very unfortunate circumstance, but I walked into this hotel one day and there was Belle. So suddenly it was like extremely fortunate and, and quite wonderful. Um, I think, of course, like, like many things, it's extremely hard to define. Uh, we have so many assumptions and notions. Uh, what I, I talk about sometimes in trying to convey it is, um, well, first there's a line from a movie called Dan in Real Life, which is some years old now. And the line goes something like, love is not a feeling, it's an ability. 
And I had some conversations with my editor about that line because I had it in, in this book. And she said, well, you can't really say that. Of course, people think of love as a feeling. That's what we want. That's what we yearn for. That's what we know. So I sort of fudged it, you know. Well, we might think of love as a feeling. We can uh, think of it also as an ability. And that turned out, I think, to be the most important line in the book. Um, because what I came to when I was trying to describe in the book as something that was really powerful for me, and I think like many transformative experiences, sometimes they don't sound like much when you put them in words, but you know how much they changed you. And this was an experience I had when I was practicing uh, intensive loving kindness practice in Burma. It was 1985. I was there for three months, and I just had this kind of realization that up until that moment in time, I'd considered love kind of in the hands of someone else, and they were going to deliver it to me or take it away. And it was almost like if the UPS person had that package of love <laughs> and they got to my doorstep and they changed their minds, I would have no love in my life. And in that retreat, I realized that's not true, that it's inside me. And other people might awaken it or threaten it or, or whatever, but as a capacity, it's actually mine. Uh, so that was incredibly liberating, but it's also a little daunting because, um, and this is how I finally ended the book, uh, with the question, basically, if it's an ability, does that also mean it's my responsibility um, to try to cultivate it in even some very, very difficult circumstances? And I, I think, again, that in a culture of domination, it's extremely hard to cultivate love or to be love. And I especially think of that at this moment of our political history as a nation when there's so much disrespect afloat. I mean, respect comes from the word meaning to look at. And I feel like we are definitely, as a nation, looking at one another without loving kindness, without compassion, Certainly living in Appalachia as I do and seeing the sort of upsurge of white supremacy there. And, you know, you think, what happened? And I've been really um, struck by how prior to this upsurge, I sort of felt, I, I feel like for me, part of what I love about Buddhism is the emphasis on practice. And so prior to this moment, I was always telling myself, that you know, if you, you have to practice love. And as Sharon's book will teach us, you know, you have to practice it not just for people you like that are near you, but that you have to practice it for everyone. And I used to feel like I could walk around Appalachia and you know, I could I could beam love or speak to white people there who won't speak back or who turn away, but I did not feel fear. But at this point in our nation's history, I feel this level of fear and uncertainty in my relationship to strangers. So that that whole sense of how do we love the stranger? I mean, Sharon has a chapter in talking about the question of how do we love everybody? And that's something that I 
really struggle with every day. I live in a predominantly white community. Um, I feel, as I know other black individuals do, that we're under the spotlight all the time, um, that there's a feeling of no privacy because everywhere we turn, someone will say, oh, I saw your car, I saw you, because we're so easy to, to pinpoint. So that that whole question of how do I love and how do I love everybody um, and how do I love people that are actually beaming a lot of hate in my direction. And that, I think, is a really crucial national question right now. How can we re return ourselves to a place of loving kindness, especially in relationship to the political parties that are in power at this point in time, and not, in fact, feel like it's okay because we disagree to relate with hate or, or negativity or you know, shaming. I mean, I don't think, never before has shaming been so deep in our social media, in our media, as I think right now in our nation. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, none of these things are easy, and I think the fact that they're not formulaic um, means that the possibilities are real. You know, like it's not, there's no easy way it demands so much of us to um, look at how we define love, look at what we believe strength is. Um, but I find, Sharon, that most people don't want to define love, that part of the mystique of, quote, love is people want to feel that it's some nebulous, unattainable, and not, in fact, that it's this concrete bottom line that you, t you write and talk about. Um, possibly, <coughs> but that would speak to, with enough pain, uh, we seek another way, <laughs> you know, and, uh, ha, that's a beautiful, because thing. I think we have to find love, not only as that sort of nebulous thing, but I find many people, uh, think of love or compassion as something that will weaken you, that, uh, you don't want to love this you know, person you're in an adverse relationship with, because that means giving in, that means surrendering, it means giving up your values, giving up your, your protestation, and why does it mean that compared to, um, I think one of the most indelible images in my mind my whole life is, is, was watching some documentary about uh, freedom riders going out to the, in the South to register people to vote, and, you know, getting down on the ground and praying. And then getting up and going forward and getting beaten up. And then being in the hospital. And there was one guy who looked really bad in the hospital. And somebody went to interview him. And he was, like, radiant. And, I, and you know, he said, we practice nonviolence. And I thought, where does that come from? You know, like, you know, I'd have a hard time generating that kind of radiance with, like, a bad cab driver, you know, like, and like, look at that. Look at what he could do. Um, so there have been times, that, or for different people, we don't see love as giving in. We see it as not being afraid. We see it as touching something uh, so much greater than the situation we're in. Uh, we see it as a wellspring of strength. And I've often, I mean, just through my years of loving kindness, not even, you know, the time we're in now, which is kind of harrowing, but... Um, in my years of teaching loving kindness, there have been so many people who have said to me, I don't know, you know, if I were to develop a more loving heart, 
I'd have to like give them more money. I'd have to let them move back in. I'd have to, I'd, you know, I wouldn't take a stand. I wouldn't protect myself. I wouldn't care about other people. I would just sort of smile. And, and I think, I've often thought, and it was one of the reasons I was so grateful to find your work, you know, like what a degraded notion of love we've come to that we think that that's what it means. And so I think there's also something empowering, although not easy, in, in saying, no, I'm going to recapture that word and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look at what it means for fear. I'm not going to look what happens when I'm less afraid. You well, know. I think that that was part of the power of Martin Luther King that we've kind of lost, that when he spoke about love, he kept talking about it as a transformational force. But that's not how it sort of came down. It came down to sort of like, oh, this sort of weak notion of love your neighbor or um, as yourself or what have you, but not as this empowering force that completely changes everything. I mean, I have to say that I, I don't feel that I came to love, to the practice of love until I, I'm, I'm, you know, in my mid-30s where I was having the bad relationship and trying to figure out, like, what the heck is going on here? And I realized that one of the things that was going on was that we didn't share a common understanding of love. So our sense of what to do in relationships was radically different. How to, how to solve problems, how to deal with conflict, um, how to find that space of compassion. I don't think compassion ever came up. A lot of anger <laughs> came up. Um, and I began to really think about my life and my, my sense of not being loved, but also the fact that we're not supposed to talk about not being loved. You know, when I tell people of, about, you know, not feeling loved in the family, family members or other people try to reassure me, oh, yes, you were loved. Um, and I'm like, I'm here, I'm telling you that as a child, you know, when my dad was breaking that door so that he could whip me with it, I wasn't feeling loved. But I quickly learned that you should pretend that that was love um, because that's, that's what we were told, you know. Oh, well, you're, you're being punished in this way because we love you. We want you to be something uh, other than what you are. And so to finally come to an understanding of love, which for me on my book tour all about All About Love, I was so stunned by the number of people who would stand up and say, my father brutally beat me, but is it because he loved me? And I was so stunned that so many people felt that violence was not an indicator of a lack of love, but in fact an expression of an intensity of love. And to me, I really begin to think a lot about that, about where is that sense of love coming from? And of course, as we know, a lot of it's coming from TV and um, now social media. But that sense of where do we begin to learn what love is, how to love. I mean, that's part of, part of what I think is the magic of Sharon's book, is that really it's, it has a lot of how-to um, work in it. In many ways, it's a workbook, it's a handy book, because we don't know what to do. You know, I remember trying to tell my young lover 
um, at the time who seemed not to comprehend love. I, I, I wrote on a little postcard thing, you know, love is a combination of six ingredients, care, commitment, knowledge, responsibility, respect, and trust. And so if you don't know what you're doing, just pull out that little card and ask yourself, in what way does my action that I'm taking reflect these traits, these characteristics, these, these values, if you will? Because that's just kind of how lost we were in the sea of unlove and of not being able to communicate with one another that this is what love is. You both uh, pointed to a problem of definition. Uh, you've said, for instance, we don't want to define it because we prefer to keep it mysterious, or the people in a relationship have different definitions. Some people have definitions that are clearly destructive, like your abusive father. So, uh, you've, you've given us one definition, but, but basically, if we have a definitional problem, what are each of your answers <laughs> as to what the actual definition is? Oh, that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that part of what I just said is not, it's the action. It is, it is there in the action, not in the definition necessarily. Um, if anything, like those six things that I named form a basis for action. Uh, it's what you're doing. It's not what you're feeling or what you're defining, but what is the action that you're taking? I, I was actually with my ex um, a couple of nights ago, and I said, you know, when I look at the movie of my life, the scenes that I want nobody to see are the scenes in which when we broke up and I wanted to get back together and he didn't, how desperate I was, how badly I behaved, how I invaded his privacy, I tried to listen to his phone calls, all of these, for me, that, you know, in retrospect, were incredibly shameful behaviors um, that I didn't know what to do. And so that I think, again, the question of love is the question of what to do. And that's what makes your book, Sharon, so powerful. Thank you. Could you repeat the six? Yeah. Care, commitment, knowledge, responsibility, respect, and trust. Could you do it slower? <laughs> Care, commitment, knowledge, responsibility, respect, and trust. Drawing upon Eric Fromm, of course, in, in, in that whole definition, but I think that I was certainly seeking both for myself that whole question of action, what to do, how to love. And I always, I am, you know, an amazing fan of Martin Luther King and especially the book Strength to Love because um, I think it does take courage in the midst of domination to decide to love. Um, and I think that that's the commitment that many of us would rather really not deal with, um, which is how do, how do I make that choice? How do I make that commitment? I mean, Sharon, I, one thing Sharon says that I, it's so funny, and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, I agree with her, but one of the things that she said that I have doubts about is that she says that one does not have to be um, completely self-loving to love others. Um, and I, in my own matrix of things, tend to make a distinction between care and love because I feel that I am where I am in my life because of the care 
that I received in the dysfunctional family. But my thinking is that you can receive care Monday through Friday, and then someone can be abusive to you on Saturday, but it doesn't negate the fact that you had the experience of care. Uh, and I've especially felt that in talking to people who've had no experience of care, but it's not love. So I believe that we can wholeheartedly care for others without loving ourselves, but I, I don't know that we can love them, Sharon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, Belle had told me earlier today there was one thing she disagreed with, so I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be. Like, I'm not going to tell you. Until just now. Uh, because I've been, as you've been speaking, I've been thinking about the missing ingredient in those dynamics is, is love for oneself, um, which sounds a little flip and maybe cliched, but uh, it is the trajectory. What I was meaning, and, and I'll have to really ponder what you just said, what I was meaning was that I think there are people um, uh, that I've seen, especially in, in work, in professional settings, you know, who, are, who make immense sacrifices and are incredibly generous and do love the people they're working with, but they burn out, ultimately, uh, you know, because there isn't some kind of balance in there. And I know balance can seem like a very dry and cold sort of word, but um, there's something about feeling whole, you know, rather than depleted and uh, exhausted and overcome and guilty because you couldn't make it all better uh, or whatever it is. And so um, what I try to say is that I don't think loving yourself totally 100% should become the project before you ever work to love somebody else, which some people take it as, well, I think I'll just... I mean, people say that to me all the time with loving kindness. I decided to spend a few years only offering loving kindness to myself. And I understand the impulse and I even respect that, but, and then I say, well, how do you know when you're done? Yeah. You know, like what's the measure we're looking for? Cause we're looking for a measure. Like now I love myself completely. Well, one so of the things on. you say, Sharon, is that real love, this is a direct quote from this wise woman, seeks to find authentic life. But I think that in finding that authentic life, we do come to that place of wholeness, which I, I wouldn't say we don't, we don't come to a that sort of some, oh, now I completely love myself. But I do think that we come to that mm -hmm. place of wholeness where we can, in fact, be at peace, especially many of us who have experienced trauma and who have unresolved trauma. And it is that, that call to authentic life that is so powerful that, I mean, in fact, that does make you want to love more. I always tease people that I'm kind of like Michael Jordan, you know, that carrying that ball down the court, that as you really begin to love and you practice love and you're carrying that ball down the court, how much easier everything becomes. And you really write a lot about that, the, that people start off thinking, I could never do that. It's too daunting. Or I, could, I would never want to do that. It would make me too vulnerable. But then the more you do it and the more you practice, the more, the more it's such an, an act of grace and ease to love. Okay. Yep. Thank you. And your name? Hi, my name is Floor. Um, I love you. <laughs> Just saying that. The question I have, and I've been processing this a lot, is 
how do you or where do you go to find the strength to love the other and well, I guess stop thinking about the other person as other. How do you do that? What is the step you do, you you take to stop seeing the other as the other when you obviously see them othering you? Well, I think that's why, and don't you agree, Sharon, that the practice of compassion is so profound? The, the you know, the practice of finding a space, where do I enter in that space with this person? that clearly others me, that clearly wants to deny me my humanity. How do, where do I, how do I go into that? And of course, for many of us, that's one of the key roads, roles of meditation. It's like when I wake up in the morning and I, and I meditate and I do other spiritual practice, it has to do with trying to center myself precisely because I, so I can have the strength to not be shriveled up by some act of aggression that I might encounter. I mean, as black people and brown people, we encounter so much everyday aggression. And I see it all the time that people will have some, what may seem to me like a little trivial incident, but it will shatter their day. It will shatter them, that they, they will carry it with them. Um, and for me, it's the process, the alchemical process of meditating of reflection that allows me not to carry um, things with me uh, in such a way that they paralyze and wound. And I think that um, I believe that people of color are desperately in need of qualities of therapy and of self-care that strengthen our capacity to enter into this culture of domination without being constantly wounded. You want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote a whole chapter in the book about, well, first there's a chapter about stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And then uh, I wrote a chapter on stories others tell about us and how we absorb them. And I mean, I think in a way, the hardest part sounds like you've already done, which is even wanting to, you know, to, to not think, well, that's... Um, that's weakening, you know, or that's that's a really stupid response. That's like colluding, um, you know. And to understand that there's potentially a huge kind of strength there that allows us to um, feel the dignity of our own being, and also recognize that uh, we. I do believe we have a kind of innate dignity, each of us. And some people live so far from it. I like the word shriveled up, though the term shriveled up. Because that's also the, the doorway to compassion. It's like, look at how that person is. You know, look at how they, um, look at the choices they're making and, and the self-imposed prisons. And, you know, talk about being alone and cut off. And, um, you know, and there is a kind of compassion, I think, that naturally flows from that, which does never mean, you know, it never should mean that you say, oh, well, what the hell, you know, like, do it again. Uh, it's not like that, but it's, it is a source of, of great strength. And we have our last question there. She's been holding her hand. Oh, yeah, there you go. The light's so dim. No, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being very patient because uh, 
It allows me to refine, to refine the process in myself. My name is Johnny Yah. Uh, I'm so happy that we're talking about this topic um, in terms of racism and oppression and privilege, because uh, these spiritual discussions have to come together with the political, and so that's right where I'm living, so I knew I had to be here. Um, but I'm dealing with the, something complicated, and the complication has to do with trusting the desire in me to love the other when I know that my people were conditioned hundreds of years ago to take care of the other. That's complicated. I think this is been really, if we think of it in terms of gender, especially a, a question for women that how, how do I engage in appropriate self-care when I've been conditioned to care for others? And it seems to me that part of uh, what happens as you grow in self-efficacy and your ability to be accountable, you can engage what I call the practice of discernment. You can know the difference between Say, for me, um, I say, like, a white person who wants me to be mammy and a white person who may need me to be of service or of help to them. I mean, that, that's when I have to engage discernment and be able to judge um, what, where that person is coming from or to observe where that person is coming from. Because I don't want to go through the world believing that every person that is deemed other um, is seeking for me to be their slave or seeking for me to be mammy um, for them. Um, but I often think about this with myself that people will say, well, why do you put up with so-and-so, a colleague or at work or something? And I say, well, I see myself as a bodhisattva and that I am committed to service. And, um, and so how do I distinguish serving the, the spirit of serving from being a victim, from allowing someone to be unkind. And again, I find it's in the practice of discernment. I, I had a really bitter quarrel publicly with um, a white woman colleague. Um, oh, and we were both awful, but I was particularly awful. I felt, um, I was like, oh, so we're not doing feminist solidarity today. We're doing white supremacy. And... <laughs> She kept saying, I'm not going to talk to you. I'll talk to you when, when, when I feel like it. And by then, I was like, OK, bitch. Uh, you don't ever have to talk to me. And, and we spent months in silence um, and avoidance. And then I began to think about all the good things this woman had done towards um, pushing us towards diversity and um, helping me to be hired or, or what have you. And, and I, again, I think part of what is so horrible about dominator culture is that it's, again, either or. Like I thought, why does this one difficult action or bad action or conflict negate all of the good things that this individual has done? So that I think that that's a constant way to, to distinguish between the question of service, of who I serve, 
And um, it's just like even seeing my ex the other night. I mentioned to several people, you're going to see him after all the things that he did? And then I kept thinking, but he did other things. He did things that were filled with care and kindness. And that I have a choice here of what I want to hold on to. Uh, now, but of course, as Marge Piercy says, this is above all else, refuse to be a victim. That you don't wish to continue that negative practice, but that you believe that there is another practice that is possible. And in fact, I said to him, you know, the same thing I shared with you guys about the movie of my life. And I said, I hope, I mean, this is we're talking like years ago. I said to him, I hope you found a way to forgive me for all of my incredible, violent, mean, negative action. And he just started laughing. And he was like, of course I forgive you. That was a million zillion moons ago. But I just think that the fact that I could even say that, because shame makes me not want to have to ever think about that period of my life and how I behaved and how I was not the glorious little Buddha girl Belle, you know, <laughs> but that I was monstrous. And how do, how, I also believe very strongly that we have to be in touch with the monsters within in order to have compassion for the monsters that are in other people. Because when we start thinking that we are, I, I'm monster free. Uh, I'm Buddhist. Um, then I think we begin to lose that capacity to practice discernment, to, um, to not be vengeful, to think in terms of love. Is it still on? Yeah, so it, I, first of all, I want to, for all of you that had questions and we didn't get to you, I'm, apologize. Um, it's one of the reasons that we have a little reception afterwards, and I hope you'll be able to talk to one another, to our wonderful speakers. Um, I appreciate all your patience. I wondered, as we close, um, and again, just to remind you that we're going to bring out the books for sale and, and some refreshments for you, and maybe we'll ask the presenters to just stay in their seats rather than have you move somewhere else. And just stay there until you want to move around. Whether um, anyone has a f just a final uh, <laughs> just a final word that you would like to say as we close the program, um, and I, from the bottom of my heart, thank all of you. Uh, I thank our partners, the Garrison Institute, and Lions Roar. Melvin, thank you so much for being here. This is just a major gift, I think, for everyone here tonight. So, Sharon and Melvin. Um, Bell, if you have a, just a final word. Well, my final thing is that I often at the end of my day scan the day to say, okay, Bill, how were you loving today? What did you do that was loving? Even sometimes I have to say, what did you do that was loving towards Bell today? Um, because I think that as a practice, it's easy to fall back into practices of negation. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, I want to thank you, of course, and thank you and Susie for pulling it all together. And uh, I just had a moment in time of feeling um, how different this level of dialogue is from kind of the day-to-day, -day, you know, in this time. And uh, really feeling how important it would be to try to bring some of this to whatever extent I can into um, the world as, as we find it, not just the people who gather, because we want to be together, but 
all those places we kind of find ourselves together, like it or not. So. And I really loved watching your face during that last answer when, when Bell was saying, you know, he did some good things too. And you went, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Melvin. Melvin. Well, I guess I'll just, I'll just only say thank you. Um, first of all, I'd like to tell everybody that, that uh, an edited version of this conversation will appear in the August-September issue of Lion's Roar, which will have a cover story on the theme of love and compassion, and that I do encourage you to uh, actually read, therefore buy, uh, Sharon's book, because I feel that you know, yes. It, yes. it's called about love, but but really, I think the central thesis of think a lot of what we've heard tonight is that really to love, we have to become complete, uh, integrated, and ultimately um, happy human beings. And so, really, in the end, it's it's less a book about loving per se than how to be a human being. And it's actually one of the best comprehensive. Uh, looks at that from a from a contemporary Buddhist point of view that I think is out there. So um, that's my little Thank you. pitch. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.